This is Tell Your Story, Alaska. We talk aviation, history, theology, but most of all, the raw stories of Alaskans and the gospel. everyone, welcome back to part three of the history of the church in Alaska. I am back here with Adam London, and uh, both of us kind of have like sort of crazy schedules right now, but we've uh, managed to find time to record part three, and today we're going to be talking about the Baptists and the Friends, also known as the Quakers, right? Uh, And so Adam, let's go ahead and dive right into it. I will hand the mic to you. Great. Thanks, Billy. Good to be back here again and talking about Baptists and Friends, two groups that are pretty different, uh, but were two of the first on the scene in Alaska. And uh, whenever we talk about Baptists, it's always such a broad range of people. And, um, you know, we talked about the Southern Baptists. That's often the one that we talk about the most, but there's lots of other Baptists in Alaska. Independent Baptists are probably the other end of the spectrum, uh, but several other groups of Baptists within Alaska. And so we're going to talk about some of those groups. Um, but honestly, it's the Baptist history is not the best recorded history in Alaska because it's such a varied group and there's not necessarily a central um, central office, as it were, for the Baptist denominations. And so if anybody's listening and you know things that I don't know, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear more about um, especially some of the other smaller Baptist churches and or independent churches and how they got to Alaska. Um, but the first Baptist group that came on board in Alaska was the American Baptist Church. And so uh, we don't think about the American Baptist Church quite as much as we do, say, the Southern Baptists or the Independent Baptists. And part of that is just their presence within Alaska. Uh, But even right now, there's about 14 American Baptist churches still in Alaska, uh, whereas there's about 100 some Southern Baptist churches. And uh, and there's uh, hard to say exactly because Independent Baptist churches don't always – have their names in the church, but there are probably about 40 to 50 independent Baptist churches in Alaska. Um, So we think about those latter two more, but the American Baptist Church was first on the ground. And, uh, you know, um, it's interesting that the Baptist Church has some similar roots as the Moravians and, uh, and some cousins to the Friends. Uh, but so it's just something to think about too. And even the Swedish covenant church, which we'll talk about, I think in the next episode, they trace their roots back to the same Baptist roots that most Baptist churches do. And well, you talk to different Baptists and they might actually say different things about where their roots came from, but generally they think that their roots came from the Anabaptist movement starting in the 1500s, coming from Zwingli and uh, Jacob Hutter, and uh, those who became the Hutterites became the Moravians, who became the Covenant Church, etc., and so on. Um, but so kind of keep that in mind that they have some combined history, and that really plays into 
what they did in Alaska because it's uh, it goes from one Baptist group to another Baptist group um, pretty pretty seamlessly, really, compared to a lot of denominational um, exchanges. So American Baptist churches, they were the first on the ground. And so they were the first on the ground, perhaps, in 1879. And so the very first people who claim, and they were self-proclaimed as the first Baptist missionaries, uh, they were not recognized by any sending agency, not by the American Baptist Church, but they were American Baptist Church members. And so in 1879, there were a couple of teachers that arrived in Juneau in 1879, uh, Mr. W.H.R. and Emily Corleys. Those were the two first Baptists on the field that wanted to do some work. And so they, uh, they're credited with starting a school in Juneau, and uh, that started up in 1882. Uh, but they were here before the official beginning of the American Baptist Church. But nevertheless, they deserve some mention there. Uh, but really, the American Baptist Church as a group first heard of Alaska in 1880, uh, along with Sheldon Jackson. Sheldon Jackson, I remember, in 1880 was sending out all of these letters to different denominations and trying to meet with denominational heads saying, hey, we need to have more Christians in Alaska and we need to spread the gospel. And who will go? And so he sent letters to dozens of different churches and groups. And one of those groups was the American Baptist Church. And so Reverend J.C. Baker was the one who got this letter for the American Baptist Church, and he immediately began to get to work in trying to figure out whether this was feasible. Uh, the American Baptist Church had already been working with some indigenous groups down in the lower 48, specifically with the Cherokee. And so they had history of working with the native people. And so um, they kind of had some idea of what they were getting into, uh, but they didn't want to jump in without counting the cost first. Uh, which is to their credit, a lot of groups didn't really count the cost. Uh, I mean, well, even the even the Presbyterian Church, Sheldon Jackson, he's just like, hey, let's get this thing started. We don't even need to get permission. Let's just go. Let's go and send Amanda McFarland. Uh, but the Baptist Church, they wanted to count the cost, so uh, the American Baptist commissioned Reverend Morehouse to go and uh, and do a survey of Alaska. And so um, it's not unique to the Baptists. There were other groups that also sent out survey groups to Alaska to see whether ministry was feasible, uh, but they were the first ones really to kind of do it. And so uh, Reverend Morehouse, he went and he recommended that uh, missionaries could go and experience some success if they went as school teachers combined with the U.S. government, uh, which, of course, was Sheldon Jackson's main um, main plan for getting missionaries out to Western Alaska. And so um, the American Baptist Church, J.C. Baker and Reverend Morehouse, they kind of put it out there amongst the different uh, pastors in the American Baptist Church. And two pastors responded. First one to respond was Reverend J.A. Worth. And so he was the first one to respond. And also Reverend W.E. Roscoe. And so both of them had wives and their wives came along as well, as well as Reverend Roscoe's wife, uh, Ida, and their baby. So now that's a really interesting thing that the very first uh, missionaries for the Baptist Church came as families, even with a brand new baby, which is pretty hardcore. I mean, when I think about 
uh, we have five kids and then I think about bringing a, a newborn child with me to anywhere, I think I don't want to do that, especially if you're going on a ship that's going across the ocean where you could die. Uh, you're going to a land that you don't know anything about. Uh, you don't know where you're going to get food, shelter. Bringing a baby is like the last thing I would want to do. Uh, but they were so convinced that this is where God had called them that they were going to do it. They were all hey, Adam, that, that, make, that makes a, an interesting thing that I've, you know, kind of battled in my own life. And this is just a little side note, but bringing small children or, you know, we as adults choose to take risks for the sake of the gospel. But when you consider what about our children, are they choosing that risk? And so there's that. But but you have to instill some risk to live uh, even just normal life. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so that's just like a tension that missionaries live with. And it's interesting the Baptist went for that. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly wrestled with that a lot in my own life. And I think every missionary does. Um, but yeah, Reverend Roscoe and his wife, Ida, they're, they were all in. Uh, hmm. In some ways, I think that takes more faith than it does for a one-way single missionary who is like, well, I'm just going to go and live the rest of my life there. But yeah, once you once you're counting the cost for your family for a newborn baby as well. That's, that's hardcore. So they were convinced that God was calling them. And so they hopped on a boat, uh, September 22nd, 1886, uh, in Seattle. And, uh, really cool. They got on a ship with missionaries from two other denominations. And so missionaries from the Presbyterian church, Reverend JW Curry and his wife, uh, as well as a Methodist missionary, which we're not going to get to for a couple episodes, but Methodist missionary, Reverend J.H. Carr. And so uh, there, was, there was such a good attitude of cooperation uh, early on amongst most Protestant groups. And so you can kind of see it there. This was very common, um, happened with other church groups as well. We'll hear from the Covenant Church, Episcopal Church. There was a, the, They shared missionary uh, boats up to Alaska. And I think that that was a really good time for them because it's not like, I mean, even now I just flew from Chicago yesterday to Anchorage and it was a six hour flight. And that's, that's a pretty long flight. You can get to know somebody pretty well if all of those missionaries were hanging out, but they were not flying. They were on a boat that took a long time and they pretty much had no choice, but to get to know each other. And of course I think that it wasn't that they had no choice. They wanted to get to know each other. They had an attitude of camaraderie that I mm. think we often are missing on the field today. Um, but mm. super cool. They went together and would enjoy uh, being and a fly on went, the wall on that boat to just listen to their conversation. Wouldn't it be cool? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, did they really know what they were getting themselves into? Probably not, uh, <laughs> but they were willing to go wherever God was leading them. And that's a, hmm. that's a pretty amazing thing that we, we don't always get these days. Well, we that's what wanna... a step of faith looks like. You're stepping into some unknown thing, but you're trusting in God's sovereign hand over it all. And, you're, you're willing to take that risk and take that punch. I mean, that's why missionaries worldwide are the first people in places like this, you know, uh, into any Amen. new culture. Amen. Yep. And I'm glad that God calls specific people to be the pioneers and the pioneer missionaries. I, mm -hmm. I think about that sometimes, but there's so much more comfort in being a missionary who comes after the pioneer work is done. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, these are, these ones were the pioneers and God mm -hmm. bless them. They were awesome. 
Um, so these three made it to Alaska and they went different directions. And so the Baptists ended up in the Kodiak area. And so um, the American Baptist Church has continued to be in Kodiak ever since, since 1886, they've been in the Kodiak area. So very, very long time. Um, and it's interesting that the they split those two missionaries up, actually. So uh, one, one couple went to Kodiak, the actual big island of Kodiak, uh, the city, uh, sorry, the city in the big, big uh, island of Kodiak, and the other went to a Fognac. And uh, so uh, it was Roscoe, and his family with the child, Ida and the baby, that went to Kodiak, and Reverend Worth and his wife went to a Fognac. And they only stayed there for about four or five years um, due to health, unfortunately. And that's mm-hmm. that's a common theme that you see throughout a lot of churches is that uh, the early missionaries often had health problems, which took them out. Um, that's probably one of the main reasons that took out missionaries early on in Alaska. Um, but you never know what they did in those years and the, the ground that they, uh, that they tilled. Um, so that was, that was a fog neck, but Kodiak really became the focus of the mission. And a big part of that was because of the Roscoe's and their, uh, how committed they were to the ministry there. And, When they got to Kodiak, it was interesting, though, because usually when we think of these missionaries going to western Alaska, and of course Kodiak's maybe not necessarily western Alaska, but rural Alaska, we think of them going to just Alaska Native people, right? But in Kodiak, because of the fishing industry, there was actually already other people there, non-Native people. In fact, there was a lot of Chinese people there that were working there uh, amongst the the canneries and whatnot. And so when uh, Reverend Roscoe got to Kodiak, he noted specifically that the Chinese employees, and I'll quote, the Chinese employees bring or rather smuggle immense quantities of samshu into the country and peddle it out to the natives. And that's that's a form of alcohol. And so it's interesting that it wasn't just the white people who were bringing alcohol into uh, into Alaska, and it wasn't just the Americans either. So these were um, Chinese immigrants that were bringing in uh, in alcohol to the native people. So it's not just that the white people did it, and oftentimes we, this is a theme that we've been talking about. Uh, people have the idea that the church brought in all of these social ills and helped destroy native culture, but there's enough blame to go around. And Mm. so I'll just kind of keep that in mind. Um, Neither the Baptist church nor the friends church that we're talking about, they brought any alcohol into Alaska. Both groups were anti-alcohol as most of the early church groups were. And so uh, Reverend Roscoe specifically noted that and uh, and as they were beginning to do ministry, one of the things they realized is that there was a lot of young people, a lot of kids who had been orphaned for various reasons, but often connected to alcohol and parents who had died because of alcohol or there was great neglect and kids were abandoned because of alcohol and not to mention the, uh, the great diseases as well. And I think we maybe mentioned this in another episode, but a good book to read is chills and fever talking about some of those pandemics. And so the uh, the American Baptist Church, one of the first things that they did, big things, is that they started an orphanage. 
And so they started an orphanage in uh, on the 4th of July, actually, July 4th, 1893. The Kodiak Orphanage was opened on Wood Island, and it was funded by almost $5,000 raised by the Baptist Women's Mission Society. And that's something that we see in other groups as well. Uh, the women's groups often raised money really well. And so $5,000 back in 1893, and I, I haven't checked the, uh, the rate there, but that was probably a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty amazing. And so they opened that up and, uh, that became a big, big part of their ministry. The, um, the Wood Island or orphanage that also, uh, then became a school as well as most orphanages did and was a really big ministry center. And because of that, there was a church that was planted on Wood Island, which is part of the Kodiak area. And so July 29, 1896 was officially the first dedicated, uh, Baptist church. And um, so Roscoe uh, and Worth had come and done some work and they had, uh, they had some chapels, but they didn't have an official um, American Baptist church, as it were, that was officially on the roster until 1896. And so um, Reverend, uh, Reverend Roscoe and his family, they were already super invested in the orphanage and the ministry there. And so they called another pastor, Reverend Curtis P. Coe, and he was the first official pastor of that Wood Island Church. I and did so just look up the, the beginnings. Uh, I just looked up the conversion rate. It's about $180,000 in today's money. So that's a good chunk yeah, of change. That's, for that's pretty ladies. impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, $180,000. No, that's great. Yeah, I think most of us missionaries would be thrilled to receive that amount of money as uh, as a starting gift to get some ministry going. And so praise the Lord. God did a lot through that orphanage. Um, and so that was kind of the beginnings of the Kodiak Station. And that really was kind of their main hub uh, as far as rural ministry goes. Um, but like a lot of churches, the Baptist Church also almost uh, almost concurrently started uh, ministry on the road system is what I'm going to call it. it wasn't necessarily road system but um, the uh, the more western part of the state in uh, in the Juno Sitka Skagway area um, the more more urban areas anyway and so um, nine, sorry 1898 so right before the turn of the century 1898, the Baptist Church started a church in Skagway. Oh, sorry. Actually, Reverend J.C. Jordan arrived in 1898, but the church wasn't started until 1899. Uh, but that was the beginning of their uh, of the Baptist's mission, basically to um, to not just the Native people, but also to the white people as well. And so they started that, off that, with the native that time people. Was the uh, height of the gold rush, wasn't it? So there would have been a lot of outsiders in Skagway, because my understanding is that the exactly. gold rush started in Skagway, and so the Baptists got in there and planted a church there. Yep, you got it exactly. Yep. So mm -hmm. um, gold rush, eighteen ninety eight to nineteen. Well, really, as far as the church is concerned, eighteen ninety eight to like nineteen oh two were kind of the big push of how do we take care of all of these gold miners? 
And yeah. so uh, Baptist got in on that as well in Skagway. Uh, and interestingly, um, there was uh, a military uh, presence um, amongst the Baptist church that uh, a former army chaplain in 1899, Reverend Gallon Smith Clevenger, he went to Skagway and his entire focus was caring for the needs of the military, whereas a lot of the other churches were getting in on the gold rush and trying to care for the gold miners. Uh, the Baptist church also wanted to care for the military. And you don't see that too much amongst most of the groups, and that kind of makes them unique, I would say. Uh, and so uh, Reverend Clevenger, uh, he started off in Skagway, but he uh, pretty quickly afterwards, 1903, so this is kind of as the gold rush is petered away, uh, he planted a church in Copper Center. And so that's uh, not too far from your area. And oh. so uh, Clevenger noted Western hunters quickly depleted the area's large game animals or a- animal population and coupled with newly introduced diseases and alcoholism, the Atnes's lives grew precarious. And so he saw that the native people, even though he came up to work with the military, he saw that the native people had a great need because partially what the military people had brought to the native people. And his goal was to help the Atna become self-supporting by teaching them to raise cattle and crops. So that's an interesting little uh, change in the way that <laughs> that he did ministry. I don't think anybody else did that. It reminds me a little bit of how um, how Sheldon Jackson wanted the native people to be reindeer herders, but that made more sense because reindeer were from the northern regions and there was already caribou. There were native people who were reindeer herders across the water. Ugh. I mean, I guess in the lower 48, there was, uh, there was native people who, who had herd cattle for sure. But in Alaska, well... It was a stretch. <laughs> so yeah, I would not want to be really... a cow in Alaska. <laughs> no, <laughs> and there are some. I mean, the Matsu Dairy there has some pretty awesome uh, cows and and a yeah. and a whole setup there. But yeah, it never really took on with the with the native people, uh, and that's okay. You know, I think that one of the things I I look at with the early missionaries is that they had to be. Uh, willing to take risks and they had to be willing to try things that hadn't been done before. And so um, Reverend Clevenger, he was one of those who was willing to try new things. And so that's kind of cool. And he continued to raise cattle and raise crops, even though it didn't really take on with the native people. So that's kind of one of the things that he was known for. Um, And so that was his work kind of more going into the interior area and, uh, and so that was that was the main works of the of the uh, Baptist Church in the first first thirty years. So you had Kodiak, you had Skagway, Juneau area, um, Copper Center area. Those were kind of three main areas uh, until the twenties and thirties. Then things kind of changed quite a bit as within the Baptist world. So in nineteen twenty three, there was a female missionary who came, uh, Hilde Krauss. And she came to Wood Island to work in the orphanage, uh, and she worked in the orphanage for quite a while until about nine about nine years, uh, and then she moved to uh, Juneau. And so she had served for nine years, Wood Island, very very rural, then moved to Juneau, the urban center of Alaska. And in 1938, uh, she was still 
living there, and she opened up a Baptist nursing home uh, for children with tuberculosis. And so that's pretty awesome thing. Um, yeah, I think that anybody who's got the idea that missionaries came to uh, to colonize, to Americanize, to uh, to steal, and I just was reading even yesterday that um, all the all of the American churches that came to colonize and steal the land from native people. And um, no doubt there were some people who called themselves Christians who did try to steal native land. But you got Hildy Krauss, who is opening up a home for children with tuberculosis. What does she get to? She has nothing to gain from that except for tuberculosis and a one-way ticket to see Jesus. And um, so she, she was very different between, you know, someone using religion to gain so much like the fruit of whatever they're doing is they gain a lot. You should put up a lot of red flags. Sorry. I think our audio is cutting in and out a bit, but, um, uh, yeah, they did. you'll have to edit that. I'll work on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sure you said something awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was the best but, thing I ever said. <laughs> praise the Lord. I'll have to listen to it. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So, um, yeah, Hildy Krauss, she was, she was all about it. And a lot of those early missionaries who stayed for a long time, you can just tell that their attitude was not on self gain, but rather on self-sacrifice and trying to pick up their cross daily and follow Jesus. And uh, what do I need to do to share the gospel with those who are in the greatest need? And so Hildy Krauss, she started this nursing home in Juneau for children with tuberculosis, 1938. And then while she was there in 1941, uh, a the very first Southern Baptist missionary, Francis Black, arrived in Juneau, and she arrived to help uh, help out with Hildy Krauss and the children's home. And Along with Francis Black, there came a couple more Southern Baptist church missionaries. Mr. and Mrs. W.P. Griffin uh, came just a couple months after Francis. And in 1942, uh, Black, that's Francis Black, took over the Baptist nursing home after Krauss slipped on the ice and broke her back. And so she didn't die, but she was uh, very badly injured. And so uh, the Southern Baptist missionary, Francis Black, took over the nursing home there. And that was uh, a start of a big transition of Baptist ministry. So uh, September 19th, 1943, um, the Baptists moved in not just to the Juneau area, but also into the Anchorage area. And so they started a church there, and that was the beginning of the big push of Southern Baptist uh, ministries. And they were really mostly focused on uh, on urban centers and really more towards the white population rather than the native population. And so that's something that's pretty different about the Southern Baptist Church, whereas the American Baptist Church came in initially to work with the native people. Most of those first groups did. Uh, the Southern Baptist Church really came in to minister amongst the, uh, the white population for the most part. Um, uh, of course, Frances Black was working with native children, but um, she was kind of, uh, she, while she was the first Southern Baptist missionary, most of the other ones were working with the non-native population. Um, but it didn't take too long till they realized that there was a great need for uh, ministry to the native people within the urban centers. And so um, 1942, the, uh, oh, sorry, 1940. 1944, so this was after um, the 
uh, Anchorage First Baptist Church was started. So in 1944, they planted a church in Fairbanks and uh, by C.O. Duncan was the reverend there. And he almost immediately started working with the Native people. And in 1947, he formed the Native Baptist Mission. And so just like uh, the other Baptist groups, they started working with orphans and families. And, uh, and he also tried to start a children's home as other areas had, but he was never quite successful. But one thing that he was successful in was uh, converting some of the native people. And Tom Willock, an Inupact man, was one of the first converts amongst the native people there in Fairbanks. And years later, Willock, actually Tom Willock became ordained as one of the first native ordained Southern Baptist uh, ministers. And so praise the Lord for that. Um, also in 1947, while the Fairbanks, uh, Alaska native um, mission, sorry, what was it called? The uh, Native Baptist Mission. The Native Baptist Mission in Fairbanks was getting started. Uh, also, they were trying to start a Native Baptist Mission in Anchorage as well. And it's it's worth noting at this point, there was very rarely integrated churches and uh, that was not just unique to Alaska, but also all throughout America. I mean, there's black churches, there's white churches. And uh, unfortunately, people just didn't really at this point understand how important it is to have every tribe, tongue and nation practicing here on earth, worshiping together because we're going to be doing it in heaven. And so, uh, so the Southern Baptist Church was very, very uh, segregated in their churches, and so, you know, that's just how it was back there for back then for the most part. Uh, in fact, 1951 was the first Negro congregation that the Southern Baptist Church had planted, and that was in uh, that was in Anchorage. There, um, you think that was like yeah, intentional? Not all. Do you think that was intentional, like, um, you know, these these different groups kind of being segregated so that they share that more in common? Or do you like was it intentional or was it just part of the culture and kind of an unspoken thing that happened? Do you think? I think it was both. Um, yeah, I think that they just really didn't understand that there was a different way that you could <laughs> have an integrated church. I mean, the American culture was just so segregated that I think that they just didn't really think much about it. And um, I'm sure that there had to have been some people that thought about it, but it, it wasn't, it what definitely was not a, a common thought that people talked about, I would say um, not for another, not for another, at least 10 years. And when you had the civil rights movements, that's really where uh, integration became more of more front and center. And unfortunately the churches. Well, I mean, I guess a lot of church people were ones that were pushing that idea. Um, but the churches as institutions, I'd say, were behind uh, behind the eight ball. They were they they came late to the conversation. And mm. um, OK, yeah, it's just but, an interesting point thinking about, you know, uh, America became so multicultural, which is a relatively new phenomenon, because before uh, America, generally speaking, countries were very segregated, you know, uh, Germans, Swedish, yeah. like just very separate was the norm. And so for churches to be like that was the norm. 
And so this idea of multiculturalism or diversity, today we take it for granted. But uh, back then, it, it was brand new, right? So yep. um, just an important historical note there, I think. Yeah, and I wish that the church had led a little bit more than they did. But sure. um, yeah, it, praise the Lord. Uh, I I love that most of our churches in Alaska are what back then they would call integrated churches. Um, and I, I love it, but yeah, it took some work, took some work to get there. And I do think that part of that was that the, uh, even today, when we think about Baptist churches, we often think about, you know, which churches do we know that are most, um, uh, are most patriotic as, uh, is the way to I might put it. So I would say that the Baptist churches are often ones that come to my mind when I think about who are the most patriotic. And I think that the Baptist churches in general, even throughout the last hundred some years in Alaska, have been most tied to being American and uh, and have a harder time separating what part of my faith is American and what part of my faith is biblical. And mm. um, so I think that that was a challenge even back then as well. Um mm. But yeah, so that was Southern Baptists uh, coming into the field, and as they continued to have these uh, these uh, Native Baptist missions in Anchorage and Fairbanks, they actually started up a Bible training school for Alaska Natives in Anchorage in 1947, and so awesome for them. Um, need more. We really needed more churches to do that, and so we'll actually hear from the friends who I would say probably had the most success in that. Soon. Um, but back to back to the Baptists. So Southern Baptists, they were doing that work. Uh, also onto the scene pretty soon was the Baptist Mid-Missions, which is separate from the American Baptists and Southern Baptist Church. Um, they're kind of a smaller, lesser known, unless you're down in the Kenai Peninsula, then you probably heard of them because the Baptist Mid-Mission planted lots of churches down in the Kenai area. And so that was um, 1949 is when they first came to Homer and uh, planted a church there and spread quickly throughout the Kenai. Um, yeah, let's see. What else is important for us to know is we should probably wrap up the Baptist. Soon. Oh, okay, okay. Here we go. Here we go. This is where I was trying to get to. This is important for, this is stuff I love. All right, so how did they get to Western Alaska? There we go. All right, so uh, the Baptist churches really didn't get to Western Alaska until the 50s, uh, where most of the denominations that were out in Western Alaska came in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, but the Baptist churches were late in the game to get to Western Alaska. Uh, but really, the the person who drove the Baptist churches into Western Alaska, you can almost uh, entirely credit Pastor Richard Miller, who went by uh, Pastor Dick. And so 1954, the Baptist churches expanded from Kotzebue to Selawick to Kobuk, uh, really because uh, Pastor Dick Miller, he was pushing for that. And he actually started out in Fairbanks, um, but he he realized quickly that he wanted to do more Native ministry. So he went out to Kotzebue, started the church there. And uh, basically, like every year in his ministry, he would try to go out and plant a church in another village. And so, um, so it was Kotzebue, Selawick, Kobuk. Um, Imanic, all were planted by Pastor Dick Miller, uh, and then he uh, he he obviously, if he was going from village to village, he could not pastor each of these churches. 
And so one of the things that he did very well was uh, was trying to pass it on to the native people. And so James Ramoth and Mabel Mitchell, were, they were some of the first converts in Selawick. And um, Charlie Sheldon from, uh, from Kobuk, he was converted pretty quickly and he became uh, an ordained um, Southern Baptist native minister um, in 1956 was his first recorded baptizing of other native people. Um, also, it's worth noting that Pastor Dick Miller and his family adopted two native children. And so this wasn't just like, uh, um, you know, handed off and go, but they were they they were in the culture. They want to be part of the culture. Um, yeah. Also, another thing. Adam, that do you the, have any uh, Southern any, Baptist? If I can interrupt again, uh, do you have any insight on yeah. um, this man planted? You said maybe a. Um, one church per year, it seems like. Do you have any insights on um, how he did that? Because, you know, I speak with people today. It's like I want to see churches, you know, planted in the village and stuff, but I have no idea how to do it. And here's a guy who did it once a year. I mean, speaking of like Western efficiency, the way we always think that way, but here's a guy who kind of pulled that off. Do you have any insight on, you know, he goes into, say, Kobuk, what, you know, you, you land there in the plane, and what does he do? Do you have any insight on that? No, but I would love to know what he did. Okay. Uh, if anybody listening who who knows, let us know. But yeah, I would say uh, the Southern Baptist, the Baptist churches in general just are not great with historical records. Okay. And uh, so um, there's not like a go-to book for most of these stories. Um yeah, so this one in particular, though, is uh, I have planted thee in this land is the name of the book um, uh, from the Alaska Baptist Convention. That's uh, Naomi Hunky is the H-U-N-K-E is the author. Um, so there is some stuff written down about this. But, yeah, exactly what were their methods when they went in to plant these churches? I'm not totally sure. Um yeah, other churches, maybe the Friends Church in particular, actually probably has more um, more info on that. But yeah, what did okay. what did Pastor Dick Miller do? I don't know. Um, I suspect that a big part of it was though that because the native churches in Anchorage and Fairbanks had been going on at this point for uh, eight some years, that they had had native people that were connected to some of these villages. That's my guess. And so I would guess it was not just some random, we're going to go into this village today and see what God does. I suspect that there was some connection already. And uh, I would suspect that they also brought some of those native people with them um, if they were smart. And uh, I mean, they, they clearly established churches. So that's that's my guess that yeah, uh, and there that's, was already that's that true connection. Today as well as probably back then that you know folks that are living in the villages it's not like they never leave the village especially in the 50s i imagine mm -hmm. they would come to anchorage and you know everyone i know who lives in villages now has family in anchorage and they go all the time it's not like these folks just live these totally isolated lives and so i imagine there's a lot of interconnectedness even in the 50s probably mm -hmm. yeah i think so too yeah and in, in some ways it maybe was even more connected, smaller world because of um, because of the amount of people that were coming and going. And yeah, we can get stuck in our own world a lot more these days. I feel like 
with yeah. our phones in front of our face and whatnot. <laughs> Back then, you <laughs> yes. had to talk to each other. <laughs> yes, but that's right. Anyways, so yeah, trying to kind of land the plane on Southern Baptists. Um, uh, yep. So they that's they started out in there. Also got into Kiana Selwick. I think we already talked about Selwick. Uh, Kiana, I think, was the last of the of the Baptist churches that was planted up there in that area. And, uh, and one thing that's interesting, the Southern Baptist church did is they also had female pastors. And so, uh, the, in both Cayenne and Selowick, there was a uh, pastor Valeria Sherrod and pastor Shirley Corte. And, uh, so those were a couple of the female pastors in Western Alaska. And that's pretty unusual. Uh, we have talked about mm-hmm. other groups, but there is not as many female pastors out in Western Alaska. Um, also another thing that the Baptist church did really well is they realized that there's a lot of students moving into Anchorage Fairbanks. And so, uh, in 1956, they started up the Baptist student union at UAA and it's still there to this day. I mean, well, I assume it still is. It was there as of a couple of years ago and, uh, and doing ministry, especially with some of those native students who are coming in and, um, yeah, one of the things that they did is they would the missionaries the and pastors would invite those students into their homes, and that made a big difference. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that kind of brings us up more or less to modern times with Southern Baptists. They they're like I said, you know, most Baptist churches are somewhat independent, and so um, there's lots of history out there that's not recorded. And if anybody knows any good stuff out there, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to contact me. Find you but, on Facebook and write you a message, right? That's right. I'm pretty easy to find. There's yeah. not a lot of Londons out there. And, uh, not, <laughs> okay, not so Alaska, anyway. That that's all really helpful in the Baptist. Um, you want to transition to the Friends, and we'll yep. go there. Yep. So now we'll yep we'll go to the Friends, and it's a good uh, good transition because uh, with the Baptist Church, they had just finished. Uh, they had been evangelizing in Western Alaska in the Cotsview area, and that is actually the Friends area because the Baptist Church wasn't part of the Comedy Plan as far as that part goes. In the Comedy Plan, the Baptist Church had Kodiak and that area, and the and people quick refresher and what the Comedy Plan is. Just a quick refresh. Yeah, so the comedy plan, uh, Reverend Sheldon Jackson, he came up with, he's he's accredited as being the mastermind for dividing Alaska into denominational regions. And so every region had a different denomination that that was their focus. And in general, the groups didn't uh, didn't compete with one another when it came to those those regions. Um, so the Baptists going into the Kotzebue area has sometimes caused some friction, uh, but they went in so late in the game in the fifties that it really didn't, uh, it didn't make as many waves as some of the other interactions. Um, and the friends, friends were so established at that point. I don't think that they felt very threatened by this Baptist group coming in. And by the fifties, the the friends had realized that you can't do everything on your own, I think. And not to say that there wasn't any any friction. There was some friction, but I'd say um, that was probably one of the least tense um, transitions of a church going into an area uh, compared to many others. In fact, we'll all see some in the friends right now. <laughs> so the friends. Yep, the uh, Society of Friends is sometimes what they're called, or Quakers is what um, most people 
would know them as outside of Alaska. Um, just a quick kind of refresher or a little primer, if you don't know much about the Quaker uh, movement. They came out of England, and George Fox was one of the main leaders in the revival amongst the Quaker people. And so some people in Alaska are familiar with George Fox University, so you got a little connection there. Uh, but he... Uh, really focused on the movement of the Holy Spirit. And uh, and as part of that, the people who experienced the revival that George Fox and the Quaker church was, uh, was leading, often they trembled. They were literally quaking. That's why they're known as Quakers, because the Holy Spirit moving in them made them literally move. And I never so, knew that. That's interesting. They literally yes. quake. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, very interesting. I always so think Quaker of the, the, the oatmeal box. Exactly. I got one in my kitchen right now. But mm -hmm. uh, That's right. So next I'll, time you get some of that, imagine that Quaker man on the box shaking from the Holy Spirit. Yes. <laughs> yes. Little do you know, our oatmeal box reminds us of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's right. There you go. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yep. So, uh, but they don't, they, the Quakers was not really who they were trying to be known as. Really, they were trying to be known as the Society of Friends. And that comes from uh, their really, their main verse early on was John 15 verses, John 15, 14 through 16. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Hmm. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, that's a pretty cool thing there. So it's not just uh, like, oh, we just want to be friendly people and, you know, we want everybody to get along and we love you and kumbaya. No, they, you are my friends if you do what Jesus commands you to do. That's, mm. that's a much more serious um, charge, I would say. So it's actually so known friendship as with Christ, which is really obedience to Christ and his commands. So when they use the exactly. term friend, they're talking about obedience to Christ. Amen. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Knowing that I like the term a lot more than when I first heard it. And uh, not that I disliked it, but yeah, it's got some deep meaning. And, yeah. Um, unfortunately that also does uh, lend itself sometimes. If you just take those verses out of context to a little bit of legalism. Yeah. And so uh, and so you can definitely see that in the Quaker movement. There's a little bit of legalism, uh, and especially when the Quakers come up to Alaska, there is uh, definitely a sense of legalism. Uh, and also we we who know some American history know that who were the groups of people that came over to America first. Uh, many of them were Quakers and the Puritans. And uh, and so these were people who were American uh through and through, if you were. And so, uh, so it's really hard to separate the Quaker church from the American movement for good or for bad. And mm -hmm. so that still happened up in Alaska as well. Uh, I'd say without a doubt, I mean, we just talked about the Baptist churches who we often think are like the most patriotic group, but back then the most patri patriotic group without a doubt was the friends in the Alaska mm -hmm. field. And, so when we talk about, you know, did the did the church come to Americanize? Well, in the case of the Quaker church, maybe they did. And uh, because they were so tied government and church together that it was so hard to separate. Um, mm. 
So you got to kind of keep that in mind uh, when you go through the friend's history, that there's there's some good and some bad there. Uh, but uh, yeah, they they often the Quaker group not only I mean well they had they had uh, they officially had some writing about manifest destiny and how that God was using manifest destiny to fulfill the Great Commission and that wow. frightens me. Yes, <laughs> that frightens me today. Uh, but I I have we we have the benefit of hindsight to realize. Ooh, you might not have wanted to combine those two, the Manifest Destiny and the Great Commission, uh, but the yes. Quaker Church did. And so, yeah, they thought that God had given them this land and that they were to go and spread the gospel as part of God giving them America. And yikes, yikes. Uh, but nevertheless, God did yeah, use them that, even through that. To quote Al Mohler, who I listen to his podcast sometimes, uh, um, theology is so important. Their theology in their manifest destiny was just wrong, and the damage yeah, it was terrible is terrible. So, yeah, theology is important. Yes, Amen. Yep. Read your Bibles not just so that it agrees with you, but so that it challenges you. Those are the parts of the Bible you want to study the most. <laughs> yes, the Bible should uh, be forming your worldview, not putting your worldview into the Bible. Exactly. Amen. <laughs> so uh, not to say that all the Quakers were, were bad. There's lots of great Quakers and I have sure. lots of great friends, friends. And um, so uh, one thing, though, that is pretty cool about even the beginning of the Quaker movement, uh, George Fox was uh, was very much into doing ministry amongst native people. And so from the very beginning of the Quaker movement, there was a focus on native ministry. And so it just made sense that the that the Quakers would come out to Alaska. And there's lots of history amongst uh, the the lower 48 indigenous population with with Quakers doing ministry, planting churches down there. And again, some good, some bad. But um, but it's definitely noteworthy that that from the very beginning, the Quaker church saw the native people as a people who needed Jesus. And so not as a people who needed to be conquered, not as a people who needed to be colonized, but as people who needed Jesus. And so balance that in there with their, uh, with their own patriotism. Um, mm -hmm. And so the first, first Quakers in Alaska, they were not actually um, missionaries. The first Quakers in Alaska were whalers. Oh. And so uh, that that makes the Quaker Church very uh, unique. Um, I mean, obviously, the Russian Orthodox Church also had whalers, um, but even more so with the Friends Church, the Quakers really uh, they had a lot of whalers and walrus hunters that were mm -hmm. first on the field. So, you know, I just finished. Uh, sorry, I just finished reading a book called In the Heart of the Sea which is about mm. the whalers on Nantucket, which is on the East Coast near uh, yes. Martha's Vineyard there. And uh, it was the ship, the Essex, that was hit by a sperm whale and it sunk and the men had to survive for like, I think it was 93 days on their whaling boats. And uh, that inspired the Moby Dick story. And all of those men in that entire community there on Nantucket were Quakers. And they, and so yes. they were Christians. And, you know, it, it's just an amazing story how their faith intermixed with their impending death and the things they had to do. Uh, anyways, very fascinating story. 
Um, and I had no idea that the Quakers were such tough men uh, and survivors. Whalers, I mean, one of the toughest uh, uh, folks you can come across. So, um, sorry, that was a side note there, but I, I it just perked me because I just finished that book and it was fascinating. Sorry, go ahead. Nice. No, I think that it's very relevant. Um, and I think that that is part of why the Friends Church had as much success as they did is because they were so rugged. I mean, they mm-hmm. had a history of being whalers, they had a history of being pilgrims. Uh, they they knew how to live off of the land. And so I don't think it was a stretch for uh, most of the Quaker missionaries to come to Western Alaska and to live a life similar to the native people. Um far as subsistence and whatnot goes. Unfortunately, uh, they started the uh, livelihood of whaling and walrus hunting before they were living in Alaska. So they weren't coming to partake in the native uh, way of life. They were coming to take away from the native way of life because they over hunted. And it wasn't just the Quakers, but it's just historical fact that the whalers overhunted and the walrus hunters overhunted. And that's uh, just often human nature, human sinful nature, and something that we can learn from the native people who generally use what they hunt. Um, so anyways, the first introduction to Quakers uh, was not super great in the sense that they came to exploit the land uh, or the sea, rather. And, uh, and Native people noticed that. I mean, there's no way you can't notice that. And the Native here. people at the time, they relied on the sea, the coastal ones, right? They, they were very much themselves. So. And uh, when those populations were going down, it affected them, of course. Absolutely. And that's that's a big part of why, you know, Sheldon Jackson did the reindeer project and that uh, Reverend Clevenger wanted to try to get cattle because uh, some of this overhunting caused starvation. And so um, so that's something that the Quakers have to wrestle with on their own. Uh, On the other hand, on the other hand, the Quaker whalers were a great uh, a great witness for trying to not take advantage of the natives as far as trading goes and a lot of the a lot of the um other whalers they were trying to take advantage of the native people by trading uh alcohol in particular guns etc taking advantage of native women and that is absolutely not what the quaker whalers wanted to do the Quaker whalers, they specifically wanted to stop the trading and importation of, uh, of alcohol to the native people and uh, would very much speak out against uh, especially using native women uh, in, in ungodly ways. And so the Quakers, while they were whaling and hunting to, uh, to an unhealthy level, they were also trying really hard to combat the, uh, the whalers and hunters that were trying to take advantage of the native people, um, and to introduce liquor. And so that Hmm. was, uh, that was certainly one thing that they had going for them. Hmm. So that was uh, that was the introduction of the Quakers in uh, 1829 to 1880, and um, you might also remember that 
early on in uh, right before this time, uh, Maniluk. We talked about Maniluk in the first episode. So Maniluk was working in this region. Um, so it's definitely, definitely possible that Maniluk would have met some of these Quaker whalers uh, later mm-hmm. on in his life. Uh, we don't know for sure, but certainly, certainly possible. And so Maniluk was preparing the way for the missionaries. And in some ways, the Quaker whalers were as well, because undoubtedly the native people knew that there was some difference. They might not have understood why some of these whalers would come to uh, come to port and not have alcohol for them. Uh, but they had to have known that there was different kinds of whalers, different kinds of white people that had different motivations and different intentions. And so, um, yeah, so that was kind of preparing the way. Also preparing the way before the Friends Church made it to the Kotzebue area. The Covenant Church actually was working in the Kotzebue area um, a little bit. And so in particular, uh, there was a native young man, Uyahak, uh, who was a uh, who was an adopted son of Axel Carlson, the first Covenant missionary, who would go on missionary journeys uh all, all winter long, he would go on dog sled and tell people about uh, about the gospel. He is known as the Paul of the Eskimos. And so he went up to the Friends area, uh, to the Kotzebue area, before the Friends even showed up. And so, um, so he had already begun to tell the people about the gospel before the Friends got there. And so that's kind of all going on in the Kotzebue area. Uh, but the first official Friends missionaries that came to Alaska did not go to Kotzebue immediately. In fact, they, like some of the other groups, went down to the Panhandle first. And so the first official missionary was 1881. And again, uh, all of this responding to Sheldon Jackson's plea for people to come. So Charles Edwards was his name. He opened up a missionary school in Cake, and that was 1881. And uh, he doesn't play necessarily a huge uh he doesn't do a super lot in the uh, in the Friends Church history, except for that he is a part of an event that caused the Friends Church to explode in Alaska. So uh, he came 1881, and it wasn't until 1892 that uh, Charles Edwards, this uh, missionary in Cake, and a native man, Daosk. I don't. I apologize to anybody who. Um, who knows how to say any of these names better? Uh, but this native man to ask, they tried to stop a group of liquor smugglers bringing in alcohol to the village. And so this was them trying to stop some white whalers bringing liquor into the village. And Edwards, uh, Edwards, the missionary Edwards was known for giving testimony against uh, against those who were liquor drinking whites, he would call them money grabbing liquor drinking whites. And so, uh, <laughs> clearly there was a difference between, uh, between motivations, between some of the, uh, some of the people who had come to the village. Um, but anyway, so as they tried to stop these people from bringing in liquor, uh, unfortunately, both Edwards and the native man Daosk were both killed by the smugglers January 11, 1892. 
And so uh, in response to their deaths, a pretty amazing thing happened. 28 native people in the village of Cake are recorded as giving their life to Jesus as a result of that murder. And so 28 natives became members of the Friends Church. And the story went out to the uh, to the Friends Church in the Lower 48 and inspired multiple missionaries to join the Alaska field. Hmm. And so while there's not a super lot about uh, missionary Edwards and his work in cake in the early years, uh, clearly he made a huge impact both locally amongst native people and by bringing up more missionaries to the field. Hmm. And it's interesting. It reminds me of a, just the principle that, you know, we make our plans for what we want to do for God. But of course, God has his own plans that our biggest impact may even be our own death. And it, that's obviously not what he yeah. planned on. But, uh, um, you know, he's used it. He's going to he's going to do his own thing. Amen to that. So God used the the martyrhood of missionary Edwards and uh, to ask, I'm assuming that the native man was also a believer because he was with Edwards. Uh, we don't actually know that for sure, but I, I think it's uh, fairly safe to say. So God used their martyrhood and brought up many more missionaries. And so 1887, I would say it'd be kind of the the beginning of this new uh, group of missionaries that came up. And so uh, 1887, Elwood Wiesner and Francis Bangham started a school in Douglas. And, uh, and part of the reason why they started that school in Douglas is because there had been a number of natives who had moved from Metlakatla into Douglas. And so there was Christian native young people who wanted to have more education. So this wasn't even necessarily an evangelistic school. This was really more of a discipleship school, which is pretty cool. And uh, while it wasn't necessarily labeled that, it was clear that that was more of their motivation. They were wanting to further the faith of the Metlakatlin native young people who already had faith. And uh, 1890, Children's Home was opened, and uh, and the French Church really, really was, uh, I'd say, almost obsessed with the idea of starting another Metlakatla. And we talked about that last episode, uh, but Metlakatla was this intentional native Christian community. And part of that uh, that obsession, I'd say, I'm sure, was that they were working with the native students and they saw, uh, I'm sure, that the native students that came from Metlakatla probably were so far beyond uh, in their discipleship journey than lots of the other um, groups that they were working with. And so they really tried hard to start up a second Metlakatla, and uh, there's a lot Lots of writings throughout the native missionary um, journals about how they were trying to start up. Uh, oh, let's try a second Metlakatla here. Let's try a second Metlakatla here. And mm-hmm. there was a number of failed uh, trials of trying to set up an intentional Christian community amongst the native people in Southeast. Um, and part of it is that the they faced uh, they for, faced opposition from um, they clearly had made a stand against those who were uh, whiskeyites as they were often called. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't just uh, Reverend Edwards that had been uh, had been martyred, uh, but there was also another case in 1892 where a missionary, uh, Doctor James Connett, 
he was an advocate for a self-supporting native church. He was tarred and feathered by some uh, some liquor importers. Tarred and feathered. <laughs> but you didn't wow. know that we had people tarred and feathered in Alaska, huh? But there's one, not. one instant of that. Wow. Um, and again, uh, I don't know how much of this is like common in Friends Quaker history, but they reported that after that tarring and feathering, that cultist Doc, a uh, a shaman from the Cake area, became a Christian. And so, um, similar to when Edwards was martyred, he uh, people came to Christ somehow. As uh, Doctor James Conant was was tarred and feathered, a shaman. A shaman of all people who yep. was very, uh, I'm sure, sensitive to the spirit world and the uh, spiritual powers must have seen the spiritual power in Dr. James Conant and became a Christian. Wow. So praise the Lord for that. Hmm. Um, in 1893, as the, the Friends Church is trying to make this new Metlakatla, Charles and Mary uh, Replogle. Sorry, I don't know how to say that name exactly right, but uh, Charles and Mary Replogle arrived in Douglas. And that's very, very significant because we talked about how sometimes the Friends Church was a little bit too close with the American government and Americanizing and colonizing. And Charles and Mary Replogle, they came in very much with that mindset. Uh, mm-hmm. They punished the native people for speaking Clinkett and, uh, and, Replogle was even quoted as saying an uneducated Indian was not able to receive the fullness of the spirit. Wow. Yeah. And that's uh, wow. obviously very wrong. And yeah, talk um, about having bad theology. But, yeah. Talk about bad theology, but to their credit, they changed their minds once they came. And a big part of that was, uh, uh, Charles's relationship with Chief Dick Smith uh, from that Douglas area, who more or less showed that no, Native people are made in the image of God, my friend. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you have at least a couple years there where uh, Charles and Mary Replogle are teaching that you should not speak your your native language, that you cannot become a full Christian if you're not educated. And so there was that period of time before uh, before they saw the light, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so is there some truth in uh, in the native culture uh, being taken away by some Americanizing, colonizing missionaries? Yes, there is some truth right there in that story. Yet at the same time, God did also change hearts. And so um, praise God for that. Uh, I they love that actually happened served- because— they were just spending time with this chief of a village, just, yes. just people coming together and spending time together changes that perception because, it's, because like, it's because it's a lie. When you bring the reality together, um, it brings light to it. So that's a, that is a neat yeah. story. I like that one. Yep. And I'd say that's a biblical concept. I mean, Jesus knew there was great power in getting together and eating with people. Yes. That, that uh, that drunker and glutton who who would eat with sinners and tax collectors, he knew, he knew. If only those uh, Pharisees had in, had come to the table as well, that God might have changed their hearts too. In fact, it's, maybe that's what happened to some of them, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Who knows? But hmm. um, it is an interesting yeah, concept so, I've been thinking about lately: is this idea of the difference between theory and reality. 
you know, uh, just so many wonky ideas sound great on paper, but in the reality, they're totally different. I mean, you absolutely, it's okay to have ideas and, or strategies say, but you got to get out and start doing it. And because, uh, something might sound great on paper, like, uh, you know, whatever strategy you have, but you, once you start doing it, it's, you have to adapt. You have to change to whatever reality is. Um, I, I don't know if I'm saying anything significant there, but um, it made more sense in my head at least. <laughs> no, I, I'm down. I'm down. Yeah. I mean, it's just so hard not to love people. If you have the Holy spirit inside of you, when you're face to face with them. And yeah. so often we, we demonize people who don't agree with us to the point where that we're not willing to be in a relationship with them at all. And that's when you're, that's when I think Satan really can use you is if you're unwilling to enter into a relationship at all with those you disagree with. But instead, if you actually sit down at a table and just look at the image of God and people that you disagree with, God has a way of changing hearts. And mm. I'm thankful that he can do that even in my life. And I know that I can be uh, bullheaded too. So not to say that I I would not make some of the same mistakes that some of these early missionaries made. Um, but praise the Lord for his grace. So God had great grace for Charles and Mary. And so they did good ministry for a lot of years. And in fact, later on, they would even go out to Western Alaska, but not until uh, Western Alaska was more... Uh, more established in the friends field. Um, so something that also that was going on in the background, you can think of this not just uh, with the Friends Church, but all all the other churches, is 1895 was uh, kind of the student volunteer movement was happening. And so if you're familiar with uh, with uh, mission history in the world, Great Awakening, whatnot, um, the student volunteer movement, there was a lot more college students, college-age students that were wanting to enter into the mission field. And so you can see that uh, in all different churches, but in the Friends Church especially, you had a lot more college-age students that were coming into the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Friends Church entered Western Alaska in 1897. And so there was three missionaries that went out there, Robert and Carrie Sams and Anna Honeycutt. They were the first three missionaries to go out there uh, responding to Sheldon Jackson's ministries. Sorry, Sheldon Jackson's a request for more missionaries to come. And uh, specifically, Sheldon Jackson requested that the Friends Church go to Kotzebue to continue the work that the Evangelical Covenant Church had begun uh, through the native uh, the native man Uyok, the Paul of the Eskimos, as he was known. And so uh, Robert Carey Sams, they had been only married for nine days before they left for Alaska. Yikes. The the Friends Church was very nice to let them have nine days of honeymooning before they got sent off to Alaska. And, uh, <laughs> but obviously, they they both were very much in it. And they, you can't you can't start off a marriage by going to a mission field uh, unless you are totally bought into the idea that God wants you there. And so uh, they came and, along with Anna Honeycutt. And as they were arriving in Kotzebue, they were greeted by uh, Covenant Native missionaries, uh, Uyak and also Alice Amokachak, who were amongst other uh, white missionaries as well. And they, um, they welcomed. Sorry, I got my facts slightly off. Alice was not 
meeting them. Alice went with them on the boat, mm-hmm. actually went down to Lord 48 and went with them on the boat to meet the other missionaries, mm-hmm. uh, including Uyot in Kotzebue. And so Alice, uh, it was reported, taught Carrie Sams some 1,000 Inupak words on the journey, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. And so uh, all three of these first missionaries ended up learning the language. And, uh, and that was a big part of, uh, again, their success in the area. And um, mm. really, I'm not sure that there's any church that has more success on paper uh, than the Friends Church. They immediately, just entire villages converted to Christianity. And part of it, I think, was Maniluk. Part of it, I think, was the Covenant Church laying some groundwork. Uh, but uh, part of it was these own missionaries that wanted to learn the native language, that knew about living off of the land. And it just, uh, all the pieces came together. And mm-hmm. the Cotsby Friends Church was established very quickly. And um, and lots of the other villages quickly came to Christ as well, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh also, uh, though, while this is happening, while the church is really growing in the Kotzebue native area, uh, it's also worth noting that uh, the gold rush was not just in Nome. Uh, the gold rush was all throughout Alaska, and in the Kobuk was one area where uh, where gold miners also tried to come strike it rich. It's not as famous because it wasn't as lucrative. It wasn't as good. Nome was the best. Um, but so uh, as many uh, white gold rushers were coming to uh, the Kobuk area, which is in the Kotzebue area, uh, one of the Quaker gold rush people, gold miners, um, asked the missionaries, why don't you Christianize those of your own kind? And then their example or sorry, no, this is from uh, this is from one of the native people. Why don't you Christianize those of your own kind? And then their example would help us do right. Interesting. So okay. Why don't you Christianize those of your own kind? And then their example would help us do right. And I'm sure that that was very confusing for them. And as we mentioned, there was different kind of whalers that came, some that were good, some that weren't good. Uh, and so then now as they have all of these uh, gold miners coming in you know some of the white people are good and then some of the white people seem like they don't care about anything and so yeah why don't you christianize those of your own kind and then their example would help us to do right so the friends missionaries took that to heart and so they uh called up more missionaries to come and specifically work amongst the miners and the and the white uh folks that had come into the Kotzebue area mm. and so um yeah, good for them. And it seems like yeah. a lot of churches will pick one or the other, but uh, Friends Church did a good job of trying to trying to do that. And I would say also the Friends Church did a much better job than, uh, than say, the Baptists did in integrating churches. And so mm-hmm. I'd say both the Friends and the Covenant Church in particular had integrated churches uh, pretty much right off the bat. And there mm-hmm. was uh, there was there is not just this is the white church, this is the native church. No, this is our church for the community, and this is where everybody goes. And Adam, so, this is um, interesting. Uh, I was going to mention it before because you were talking about Manilak, but he has a list of like prophecies that he did. And this yes. book that I have um, lists them out. And one of them is because of the discovery of something precious in precious. Upper Kobuk, a large city will be established in the region. And the one after that, 
speaking of Quakers being whalers, is a whale will surface in the upper Kobuk area, which mm-hmm. that's one that they say hasn't happened. Um, but a lot of them say his prophecies have happened. But the one about finding something precious in upper Kobuk is interesting. It makes you think of gold, um, maybe the gospel. And just yeah. an interesting, um, just an interesting little thing he had there. Yep. Well, the Bible says you can tell a prophet if their prophecies come true or not, and if they don't, then better not listen to them. Right. So, yeah, it does seem does seem to indicate that God had His hand there on Manilak, and um, so yeah, certainly you can see that in the Quaker Church and the Friends Church, they immediately had great success. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, one of the things that the Quakers didn't do as well, though, is, you know, again, talking about how they were more tied to the American government and uh, and patriotism there. One of the things that they unfortunately didn't do as well is uh, they took away a lot of native names. And this was very common practice in the American government uh, all throughout uh, native peoples in the lower 48 and up here. Uh, but very often when people were enrolled in school, they would take away their native names and give them instead an American name. And the, the Friends yeah. Church gave uh, gave the majority of the native people names of famous uh, Quaker missionaries. Um, hmm. So that's interesting. And some yeah. of them named, them, named uh, native people after themselves or their fellow missionaries on the Alaska field at the time, which I'm sure mm-hmm. created some confusion. Um, it is notable even today. Uh, um, so many of my native friends have notably very English names. And mm-hmm. it's almost surprising to me having lived in Mexico with very, the names would be either very Mexican or very indigenous. But uh uh, you know, here it, they're just very, very English names, and it's just very, it's notable. Yeah. I'll say, yeah. And a big part of that was because of the American government, but not just the American government, also churches, and uh, certainly the uh, certainly the Catholic Church and the uh, Friends Church. I'd say are probably two of the bigger ones who did that. Um, but even the, even the Covenant Church did it too. Uh, I mean, we have we have some people in the Covenant area that were named Abraham Lincoln, things like that. Really. Um, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, so, um, so that's uh, one thing that the Friends Church didn't do quite as well. Uh, another thing that the Friends Church didn't do is they would not allow native dance. And so um, mm-hmm. when people say that the, the church came in to try to take some of the culture, stop native dance, uh, most groups actually did not try to stop native dance. But, uh, but because there are examples like the Friends Church, uh, there is definitely some truth in it. But to be fair, the Friends Church, they don't think that dancing of any kind is acceptable. <laughs> so it wasn't that they were just trying to get rid of native dance. They just don't dance, period, because dancing is a gateway to what? Uh, to whatever. babies yeah. and <laughs> Well, that's and what that was going to be my... That's going to be my question is, uh, do they do they say no to dancing because it's connected to animism or did they say no to dancing because dancing's the gateway to whatever? Um, dancing it sounds is like the devil, the my latter. friend. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds yeah. like it's the latter. 
Yeah. So that was a that was a case of legalism that yeah. uh, unfortunately is not super helpful. Uh, in my own personal opinion, I know that there are still some Christians who hold to that that you should not dance at all. And if you're one of those people, God bless you. Uh, that's not my <laughs> own personal conviction. <laughs> uh, but that did that did cause actually some tension between some churches. So uh, mm-hmm. in particular, the Salvation Army. Uh, really had a big problem with the friend's position on native mm-hmm. dance. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one Salvation Army leader is recorded as calling the friend's church rotten salmon with no life. <laughs> That's fine. Rotten uh, salmon, very appropriate uh, analogy. Yes. <laughs> rotten salmon with no life. Uh, but specifically because the Friends Church did not allow native dance. And so it wasn't even that like churches were all complicit in seeing like, oh, this church group is not allowing native dance. Okay, just let them be. The Salvation Army was specifically like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. And uh, in fact, uh, we'll talk about the Salvation Army another time, but they specifically in their very first opening of a church asked for native dance to be a part of it. And so uh, it's not across the board that all churches didn't allow it, but Friends Church did not allow it. Um, uh, we're getting real long here, but you can do some digital magic and cut this into two or something if you wanted to. <laughs> but okay. um, it can be a little long. Uh, another thing that the Quaker Church really, I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, but caused a lot of uh, damage, I would say, is they really partnered with the American government schools. So you might recall Sheldon Jackson, he was the general agent of education and his strategy was getting in missionaries in the schools. But then his, uh, the person who came after him tried to fire all of the missionaries and Mm. pretty much did, uh, except for, uh, in the Quaker area, the Quakers saw that there was an open door there because all of these missionaries were kind of being fired. And so instead they uh, they kind of tried to go in the back door and told Quakers back home who are school teachers to apply not as missionaries, but just as government school teachers. Hmm. And so uh, so where some areas like in Unalakleet, for instance, there's a very, very strong separation of what was the mission school and what was the government school in hmm. the Quaker area. There was no separation. And okay. so uh, the the Quaker teachers, they came in under the government contract system and they specifically tried to uphold all of the government uh, uh, mandates, if you were, as far as like not speaking your native language, which caused some real problems because uh, obviously you had some missionaries who were learning the language and were preaching messages in a new back. But then you had school teachers who were telling them not to speak in school. And so that just caused some some confusion there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can you can easily see where did the church come in and try to colonize, Americanize? Oh, it's it's hard to say there. It's it's murky water. Murky, right. murky. If, not a uh, black and white answer. Right. And honestly, in this case, it's maybe more black than white, uh, mm. depending on which which direction you think that <laughs> sure. is there, but uh, yeah. And so anyways, the Quakers tried to play both sides. They tried to be both church and state and it uh, just didn't always work great. Um, 
and they they did that all throughout uh, their. It was pretty consistent. It wasn't just within the church and school structure. It was also in the hospital structure. So, like a lot of the other churches, they would uh, they would build hospitals, but then they would staff the hospitals with missionaries. In 1911, the French church built a hospital, but they asked the government to supply a doctor. And uh, so again, who's who's Whose hospital is this? Is this the church? Is this the government? And the government doctor was uh, was not friendly towards the natives. In fact, he uh, he was quoted as complaining about the natives and saying natives would not work even if paid. And it's calling them lazy. So, Yes, yes, exactly. Mm. And so uh, clearly native people are not lazy. And especially back then, if you were lazy, you died. Right. You can't be lazy. (laughs) So exactly. But so if you have this hospital that was built by the church, but staffed by the government who's saying things like this, who clearly doesn't like native people, how are you going to be able to tell? How will the native people tell that this is part of the gospel that the missionaries are bringing it'd be very difficult very difficult mm. so you got some you got some uh like syncretism going on there between yeah. uh between the church and the government mm. and um so i'd say that uh it's not as it's not it's not as obvious today but there's still undercurrents of that in the Kotzebue area okay. it's interesting um, this marriage between you know the church and the state which have different goals and they mm-hmm. seem to be willing to meld those together and it didn't it was a bad marriage, <laughs> unequally yes. yoked, if you will. It, it created some. Yes, exactly. But nevertheless, God continued to work amongst the uh, the Friends Church um, in the area. By 1912, there was 14 missionaries, and uh, and one interesting thing in 1912 is the friends decided that God had called them so much so to the Kotzebue area that they relinquished all of their churches in the panhandle and gave them over to the Presbyterians. And both uh, because they felt like God had called them to the friends area, but also because they realized the strength of having the comedy agreement and, uh, and why should they be down in the panhandle when God clearly was using them up in the friends area. And so that makes the Friends, incredibly unique, whereas a lot of the churches were going from Western Alaska to the urban centers. The Friends abandoned the urban centers to go specifically and just focus on Western Alaska. And I think that made a big difference in their ministry. And so they saw far more success uh, amongst raising up Native leaders, I would say. So uh, let's see a couple more things that I think are worth noting. Uh, in 1914, the Friends Church successfully planted <laughs> their own Metlakatla, and uh, they—at least how they how they have written about it. So um, the Friends Church wrote to President Woodrow Wilson and requested that a reservation be built in the uh, in the Kotzebue area specifically to become a Christian native commune. And so in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson approved it. So the village of Norvik was planted as an intentional native Christian community in the same uh, light as Metlakatla was. And that's something that uh, really a lot of people don't 
uh, know about unless you came from Norvik. I was teaching this class last semester and there were some Norvik kids and they said, oh, yeah, we've heard about that. But uh, even other people from like Kotzebue like, what? That was a reservation that was created as an intentional Christian commune. What are you talking about? Uh, but um, that's that's how Norvik was started by. Does it maintain that status today as a, like a reservation uh, set aside for a Christian community? Mm, you can't find it for a Christian community, but you can find online that it's a reservation. Yes. Okay. Um, so very interesting. Very interesting. Um, but yeah, so that was the Friends Metlakatla as Norvik. And really, honestly, if you go into the villages right now in the Kotzebue area, you can tell that there is something different about Norvik. And the mm. gospel presence there is much stronger. Mm. Um, and part of it is that that it started out that way. Part of it is that uh, the Wycliffe Bible translator missionaries went to Norvik and, uh, and they – they stayed there. They were one-way missionaries, and their kids married into the into the native um, population. And so there's uh, there's just a much stronger gospel presence there in Norvik than in some of the other villages. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely, it all also goes back to that. Um, also, another thing worth noting is a story of, of the Savak family, Ruth and Agak and, uh, and others. There's a couple of books that are written about this. Uh, Jesus and the Eskimo is one of them that costs a lot of money on, on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> but they came out of the Friends area in 1920. Their relatives left uh, – um, sorry, in 1920, the, the, they came back. They came back to Buckland and did itinerant ministry. And so this was after some of the events of Jesus and the Eskimo. They came back and did ministry. And uh, so that's that's a pretty amazing thing. Basically, God called uh, Ruth and Ekok to um, – he called them out and showed a great light, a gospel light. They came to recognize it as, and they followed this gospel light to Unilocleet to be trained in the Bible so that they could go back to their people and share the good news. And um, so uh, this this kind of movement uh, was amazing. From 1923 to 1924, the school year, the uh, the friends held a Bible training school that reported, get this, 600 Native people attended. Wow. I mean, that's just like mind boggling. So 1923, 1924, the Bible school training reported 600 Natives attended. That's huge. And I don't know how how what how long this was whether i mean like you could call a one week training school a school and that's easier to gather that many people but still back then that's that's huge mm-hmm. um, so reported 600 natives attended and uh and you see this big uh explosion of native pastors in in the Kotzebue area by mm-hmm. 1933 all friends villages had a native pastor except for two and wow. uh, right now, that's basically all there is. And the Friends Church in the last 40 years has pretty much been all Native pastors with very, very few exceptions. Wow. Um, and there is one in Cotsview who's not, but, uh, but all of the village pastors are all Native pastors. They, did, they really did the best job out of pretty much any Protestant church. Uh, uh, wow. Let's see. What else should we make sure that we hit? Uh, there was also really good, um, really good partnership between the Friends Church and the Methodist Church that we can hit more when we talk more about Methodists. But um, the 
the friends had a Bible training school for many, many years in Kotzebue, and that was co-led by the friends and the Methodist church. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also later on, the covenant also came and helped out before it closed. But um, those were super significant things. Wow. Um, yeah, they had a boarding school. That was actually much better than I would say their early government schools <laughs> back in the <laughs> early 1900s. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we need to talk too much about that. Um, mentioned that Wycliffe Bible translators had gone to Norvik and stayed there. The Zabel family, Wilfred Zabel, uh, then the Zabels are still there. Great, uh, great stories. You can look those up, look them up on Facebook, ask them ask them to share some of their story with you. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. It yeah. just sounds like that to me kind the of, Quak- that kind of brings the us Quakers into were, say, modern area. Sure. The just sounds like to me, the Quakers are perhaps the most uh, maybe challenging to teach on because they're so mixed between sort of the yes. colonizing side of them. And then there's this other side of them that was very, you know, they learned the language, they started schools, they empowered pastors. And so they have that side of them. And so they are perhaps the most mixed bag of all the groups is what I'm hearing you say. Would you say that's the case? Yes, I definitely agree with that. Well, that was super long, (laughs) uh, but I think that's a good crash course in Baptist and friends. And those, uh, well, okay, maybe maybe with the Moravians in the Covenant Church, I might have a lot to say as well. But for the most part, I should be able to be a little bit more briefer (laughs) with more succinct in some of these other denominations. But yeah, no these ones are, are exciting. Lots of stories. They are lots of stories, lots of super, super interesting information and a lot we can obviously learn from. And, and also just a lot of debunking of um, just sort of some inaccurate notions about the history of the church in Alaska. So I think this material is super important. I told you before we um, started recording that um, a lot of my friends are um, asking me when I'm going to publish these episodes because of the, the everyone sees the value in the information. And of course, you are uh, doing a lot of studying for eventually a book, which you are working towards, uh, which of course, uh, we'll all, all of us should read. So Adam, thank you uh, very much. Uh, yes, we'll try to make it a little bit shorter next time, but regardless, the information is so valuable and uh, much to learn from. So thank you for taking the time. And uh, until next time, we'll get to episode four. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Billy. Yeah, thank you, Adam. See you next time.